glad to be with you. If you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You know, uh, when I was a teenager, my youth group did a lot of really great stuff, uh, spiritual ministry, but we also did hiking together. And on occasions, we'd go hike in Virginia at different places. And on one occasion, our youth group went to Old Rag Mountain. Some of you may have climbed that and, and know it pretty well. My experience that day was, since I had never been to that mountain, we were climbing up it and climbing up it and climbing, or I should say hiking up it, not climbing. And as we hiked and hiked and hiked, Old Rag is such that on the trail, you can't see more than like five or 10 feet because of the trees. So the whole time you're on the trail going up the mountain, you're kind of like, so when does this get good, right? You know? And really with Old Rag, it has one of those experiences we've all had in life where you get to a certain point, you turn a corner and you're just starting to ascend and the entire Shenandoah Valley comes out in front of you. And it's at that moment you're like, worth it totally worth it. I think one other place that does that to me is Yosemite. Uh, many of you have been to Yosemite and you have that drive up and it's all winding. And you can't see anything. And you're like, so this is what it is. And you come through that tunnel and into the Yosemite Valley and it all just opens up in front of you. And you're like, God is awesome. And it was worth that six hour drive from my house. Right. Getting a big picture in life where you get to a place where you can see makes all the difference sometimes. And the passage I'm looking at today, Romans 8, 28 to 30, we all know that passage. And this passage is following something, and that is the verses before it, Paul has shared three groanings that creation groans for that day when it's going to be released from its bondage and into that glorious future. And then it says, we groan within our own spirits, longing for the day when we're with Christ and all of this is behind us and we can see for the first time life in its bigger picture. And then the third groaning is interesting because it says the Holy Spirit groans within. And when we don't even know how to pray, it says the Holy Spirit, as if it was groanings and utterance, it comes up within us and he helps us to pray and prays on our behalf because it's not over yet. We're groaning to see that final result where we come through the tunnel at Yosemite or when we get to the top of Old Rag and life makes sense. In the book of Romans, just before you get to Romans 8.28, Paul has built up this entire point of three things. He's talked about sin, that no one is good and no one can be saved on their own. He's talked about salvation, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he's talked about sanctification. How do we become more like Christ after our justification? But then you get to a point where you realize, in this life as Christians, we suffer. In this life as Christians, we have doubts. In this life as Christians, we don't have the whole picture all the time. And Romans 8, 28 to 30 is the origin story of your salvation. You know what an origin story is today. If you've ever seen movies nowadays about Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Dave Doyle, <laughs> you know, superhero movies. 
you know that it is now a thing that they always make an origin story, so you know what the character's like, why the character does what he's doing or she's doing, and where this is going. And so in small terms, Romans 8.28 to me is an origin story. Paul and the work of the Holy Spirit wants us to know the bigger picture, that we're not simply saved and we're hanging in there. But he wants you to know that our salvation and justification is part of a much bigger picture that God had an eternal plan for, and an eternal ending for. And in between, our suffering and our experiences all make sense in light of his eternal purpose. So with that, I'd like to read Romans 8, 28 to 30. And today I'm just simply calling the message, It's All Good. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What Paul has introduced to us right here in this passage is the big picture of the order of events in which God's eternal plan and our lives now and God's eternal future for us all make sense in one big giant story arc. He mentions five words that for whom he foreknew, he predestined, and whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. That is the big picture. That's getting up on the mountaintop of our, our lives and seeing what the whole salvation plan was all about. Paul has introduced to us what theologians call, from a Latin phrase, the ordo salutis. Now, that is not a character in Star Wars. You do not want to fight ordo salutis. But rather it means in Latin, the order of salvation. To understand the whole picture from eternity past to eternity future will give us perspective on our own sufferings and our own experience of not how did I come to Christ, but why did I come to Christ? And where's God taking this? So what I want to do is I don't assume that everyone in the room has the same definition of those five words. In fact, I'm going to assume that that's not the case. So Paul has said, whom he foreknew, he predestined, etc. Let's define those terms, then go back into the text and go verse by verse. Ready? Let's do that. Let me first of all define foreknew. Relating to the doctrine of election, it's the personal, relational knowledge by which God thought of certain people in a saving relationship to himself before creation. This is to be distinguished from the mere knowledge of facts about a person. H. Wayne House says this, It's the selective knowledge of God that makes one an object of God's love. It is more than mere knowledge or cognition beforehand. The term focuses on God's motivation to act relating to persons rather than what the person will do or not do. For whom God foreknew, he predestined. 
let's not make the mistake of thinking that foreknowledge is equivalent to omniscience, or that it merely meant that God knew who was going to believe in him, so he chose them. The idea that foreknowledge is God looked down the big time tunnel, right? There it is. I see who's going to believe in me. I'm going to choose them to be mine. That's kind of upside down, right? The people who chose him, he's now going to choose. That would be the idea that to foreknow is that God knows something in advance because he looked down the time total. But that's not what foreknowledge means. See, God is omniscient. He knows everything all the time. God never learns anything. There was not a part in God's plan in eternity where he's where there's sequencing in the plan for God's knowledge. Okay, if I do this, I wonder what will happen, right? Or, oh, I didn't know that was going to be the outcome. They're going to believe in me? But rather, when you get up high enough on the mountain in this passage and you see the landscape of how the whole thing has come together, you realize it was God who created the mountain, God who created the valley, God who created the story. And foreknowledge is about people. It's not about events. Let me explain. In Acts chapter 2, it says this, And this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was foreknown by the Father. It can't mean that God the Father found out that the Son was going to be the Savior by looking through time. Right? To foreknow him in advance is to lovingly have a relationship with or determine to love them in advance. It also says in 1 Peter 1, For he, Jesus, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. God the Father knew the Son. He foreknew him before there was time and space. He loved him and he had a relationship and he knew who he was. God has foreknown you if you're a believer here today. What does that mean? He didn't look and find your faith, but rather he determined that he was going to love you of all those who would ever exist. He had a relationship already pulled out in which he determined to love you and for you to be the special object of his affections. With that, that helps us suffer that helps us walk in this life, to know that God has an eternal plan to love me. It didn't start with me being good. It didn't start with my faith. But rather, it's been God's eternal purpose. Well, secondly, whom he foreknew, that he determined to love you and to choose you to be his own, he then predestined. Now, what is predestination? Well, it's something you want to know before you go on a cruise. Recently, having been on a cruise, there was an itinerary I remember reading, and it had a final, pre, it had final destination. Those that God chose in advance to save out of all those who would live, he predetermined their destiny. Their destiny was pre-planned. What is that destiny according to this passage? It is to be made into the image of Christ. Let me define that for us. It's another term for election. This is a broader term that includes not only election for believers, but also reprobation for unbelievers. Let me explain. For whom he foreknew, 
He did not foreknow everyone. God knows everything, but he did not choose everyone. Therefore, those who are not chosen are not his elect, are not his object of his love. And therefore, it includes both of those when we say this. What is the predetermined plan for God for all the elect? To be conformed to the image of Christ and to be with him forever. Uh, Wayne House says this, it relates specifically to the determination of the elect and their conformity to the image of Christ. Are you uncomfortable yet? Uh, these are hard doctrines in the Word of God. God means to encourage you who are truly Christians through this passage. He means to give you evidence and encouragement that the plan is way bigger. And so our doubts and our struggles of assurance are in a much bigger picture in which God's plan is clear and it has an end game that will never be thwarted. Well, what is election then? That's a good question. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chose people to be saved, not on the account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, in our study of the book of Romans in our class, we're in Romans chapter 9, so we're in the next chapter. We get to see the next part. But I want to read Romans 9, 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God foreknew you, but chose you not on the basis of any merit in you, not in the basis of your foreseen faith, not in anything good or bad that you had yet done, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I said this this morning in the class, and so for those of you who are in class, you're all like, got it. These are hard doctrines. Can we love a God who does whatever he wants? Or will we struggle with that God and struggle against his sovereignty? Uh, I said earlier today that the book of Job was sort of the Old Testament equivalent to this passage. And that is the book of Job is hard to get our head around because God allows suffering for his purposes. And in that suffering, he doesn't explain to Job why it all happened. It just is. But it leads to God's glory and our good. Romans eight twenty eight to 30 is a miniature, if you will, of the whole book of Job. God is working things out for his glory, and it all works out for the good he intends, but you have to know that he's the one calling the shots. So what does it mean that he calls us? For whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he called. Well, there's at least two kinds of calling in the New Testament that we talk about. First of all, the calling to be saved by the proclamation of the gospel is called the external call, and we are all supposed to preach to call people to Christ. But not everyone who is called externally will receive the gospel because not all are elect. Let me define. Calling is an act of God the Father, speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. 
Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's putting those two pieces together. Many are externally called. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But only a few have been selected by God and caused by God to respond freely to the gospel. Are you comforted? Man, I feel better about myself now. And so here's a few other passages that explain that. Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and whoever he had foreknown, he calls them in time and space through the preaching of the gospel and the internal work of the Spirit to cause in us a faith which trusts in Christ and from which we are saved. God does not do that to everyone. Uh, Romans 8.28 is not all good for everyone because it says that God is working in such a way that all things work together for good. For whom? For those who love God and are called the elect and those who are saved. And then 2 Peter uh, 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things you will never stumble. I have to make sure that I'm called. Uh, that would go with Romans 8. How do I know the work of the Spirit, the assurance? Uh, because just being in church, just being under the teaching of the Word, uh, is no value in saying for sure that you are a Christian, uh, but the evidences which he supplies. So for whom he foreknew, he predestined, and whom he predestined, he called. He causes them to believe, and then whom he called, he justified. And that is God's legal means of saving us. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. He declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, I'm not teaching on justification here. I'm mainly teaching on the other parts of this passage, but just this that when we trusted in Christ as our Savior, two things occurred. Imputation of our sin or crediting of our sin to Christ's account, and then Christ's righteousness credited to our account. It's, not a, it's a legal matter. We're not made holy. We are accounted as, right? Credited as we are holy in God's sight. And so God, through the gospel, takes those he had chosen beforehand causes them to trust in him, and then justifies them so that they have imputed righteousness, a righteousness that was not their own. At that point, he could have just ended. He said, well, that's it. But what's the end game? For whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Now, we all know from this passage, that is in the past tense. So, he foreknew, he predestined, those are all past tense, and then he gets, and he glorified his past tense. But of course, it isn't past tense to us in this room yet, unless some of you are zombies, in which case you're dead, but you're still here, and you're walking. But it is so certain, because of God's election, 
that you will get to the end, Paul puts it in past tense and says, you will be glorified or you are glorified. It's the complete and final redemption of the whole person. When in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. When the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. All right, well, let's do this. Let's look at the text. All right, those are the definition. We did look at those five words, but let's look at the text now. and Let's go through the text. And here are some things that I want to say. I want to talk about the proposition. I want to talk about the problem. I want to talk about the process, the people, the purpose, the plan, the product, the progression. And I will be done by four. <laughs> I want to start out with the proposition. Paul starts out and says, and we know that God causes all things. We know. You know, Paul will often say, do you not know? Don't you know this? But in this case, he's so certain with Christians that you would know this that he says, we know this. What is it we know? God's in charge. We know that God is causing all things to work together for good. We know that behind the scenes, we know that God is working something out. But it gets really fuzzy in the next part, what I call the problem. We know that God is working all things together for good. That's the problem in this passage. We know God is at work. We know God has a plan. But it doesn't seem like all things could possibly be part of that plan. How can all things be worked for good? Now, here's some things we know. If you're a mature Christian, you already know this. It doesn't mean all things are good. It doesn't mean things are all morally good if we just have a view of this. Secondly, it doesn't mean in this life that God is going to make everything a Hallmark movie. Right? It's all going to work out, and at Christmas, everybody's going to be home. <laughs> sure, your family are evil. Most of your family are Raiders fans. But at the end, they're all going to be Miami Dolphin fans. It's going to be okay. They're going to be Raven fans. It's not a Hallmark movie. This passage is not saying we all know that God is going to cause every little event to somehow either seem perfect and good or to somehow transmogulate it into quote-unquote goodness. So what is it saying? We know that God causes, Greek word here, synergeo, synergizes, places together, causes to work in companion to each other. He takes all of suffering and people's sins and the acts of righteousness and he weaves all of those pieces together to do what? to do something internally to the elect. This passage is not saying that God takes history and makes it all good. It's not saying that God makes the external picture look good. But rather, God is working through every circumstance to conform every elect person to the image of Christ. Let me read that to you. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. What good? To those who love God and are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined what to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. Everything that happens to a Christian happens to make you into the image of Christ. You might do this. Take the nine fruits of the Spirit and overlay them on every single event that's happened in your life this past week. 
When I found out at 6.45 this morning that I was preaching, I broke all of those fruits. I just, <laughs> like, not going to happen. But as I thought of this passage and jumped to that, I thought, what fruit of the Spirit is God conforming me to by this moment of time? When I woke up this morning, I didn't know I was preaching today. So what is God's purpose in that? The nine fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Always the Holy Spirit is taking every event of life and conforming us to the image of Christ, of which I think the nine fruits speak very well. And in some aspect, everything you're going through, one of those fruits, if not many of them, is what he's working in you. It's the pressure that is occurring in those situations that's helping bring about this fruit-bearing season. Or if you take John 15 and overlay it, God is pruning. God is working in our lives to create more fruit. So just think of those incidents this past week that weren't awesome. Okay? And when you think of those, what is God teaching you? To love more? Joy? Peace? That was one I said when I was in my car this morning on the way over here. It's like, Lord, give me peace. Grow me in peace. Let me trust you for what you're going to do. So we know that God is causing all things not to be good, but to work to the final good for the elect. That's what this passage is about. It's not about history. It's about the elect. And that the good is to make us into the image of Christ. And so every event, every experience can cause in us growth to that end. So we know that all things worked together for good. What about the process to work together for good? Now I'm going to take a minute and define the word providence from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Take me about an hour to do that. And so here it is. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now I'll get to the point. Although, in relation to the foreknowledge and decrees of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God in his ordinary province makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, against them at his pleasure. <laughs> so what is that all basically saying? It's saying that God governs the universe by concurring with the things which are, and causing them to be used for his glory as he governs them, but he doesn't do all the actions in the universe. There are second causes. We are making free choices. We are doing things, and God weaves those into his already directed plan, which will succeed, and causes all those things to work towards his ends. When we say that, God upholds and keeps things to have the nature that they have. Water always is water. Uh, this pulpit is made out of wood, I believe, 
and will remain wood throughout the sermon, I hope. And so providence is God's working with those things which he's created in their natural way, not doing a miracle always. He's not creating woodness. This is wood. And he's keeping it wood because it is upheld by the word of his power, it says in Colossians. It doesn't turn into gummy bears in front of us, although that would be kind of cool. And so God is working with the nature of things. I say all that to say this. Left to ourselves without the Holy Spirit and without salvation, we are selfish and we are sinful, and many are evil. Everyone is evil before God, but some are even more evil in their actions. And God allows those things in his providence. He does not cause them, but he allows them. And so in God's providence, he works all things together towards good. He even uses the sins of dictators and wicked people in order to accomplish his good purposes. He used Judas, whose intent was to do evil. He allowed him to do that. He did not restrain Judas's evil. And that's the problem we often have with understanding God's purpose. Why didn't God do something? Because God's picture is different. I can't believe he would have allowed. Yes, but he did. Why? Because he has a purpose to conform us to the image of Christ, and he has a greater purpose for history, which we cannot understand. So who are the people then? We've already said that. This is not for everybody. It's to those who, are, who love God and who are called. Those are the elect. So this is not good news if you're not a believer here today. This is not a Bible verse that you can get a tattoo and be like, see, it says it's all going to work out. No, it's not. If you're not in Christ, you are damned and under God's wrath. And all things are not being worked out for good for you. They're all being worked out towards judgment in your life. And so what's the purpose? It's according to his purpose. I just want to refresh your thinking in Ephesians 1. Also, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 3, this one is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he created or carried out in Christ Jesus. And then 2 Timothy 1.9 again, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us from all eternity. So what's the plan? That's what we started with. What's the big plan? How is he working all those things to make us like Christ? It's because he already chose you. It's because he's predetermined your destiny to be conformed. It's because he's called you in space and time. It's because he's justified you, and he will indeed glorify you and complete his work. What's the product to be conformed to the image of Christ, and what's the progression? We've already said those five things. Here's what I want to do in my remaining time. I want to encourage you to deeply take your roots and look at the bigger picture of God's sovereign and providential work and see it in light of that. So let me give you a couple of verses before we close. Hmm. There's only one overall plan. Ephesians 3 says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. The first thing we have to understand is that this is not a second plan or a third plan or God saves people 
only because, oh, I saw that they sinned in the Garden of Eden and I made a plan, but rather there's an eternal purpose. Um, God's plan is wise. Psalm 104. O Lord, how many are thy works? In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. Romans 11. O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Maybe God, though, is constrained by the situation. Maybe he has to do all this stuff. Maybe Maybe the way the world is is causing him to act, but that's not what Isaiah says. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or, or his counselor informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Uh, nobody. God's plan is absolute and unconditional. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I'd say it this way for encouragement. That God is happy. God is happy. Uh, he's, he is not, oh my, the world's out of control, or it's not working out, or people are not getting saved, this is a bad generation, or the preaching's really bad, so nobody believes the gospel. But God his purposes are going to stand, and he says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We serve a God who, when you look at history, you have to look at the larger part of the mountain and not your own experience of it. So just a couple other things. So God is sovereign over all things. Revelation chapter 4. Worthy art thou, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of them they will exist and they were created. God gives us the power to get wealth, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers. And whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth and the seas and all the deep. Uh, if you have relatives that are not Christians and you've been praying, and we often get to the point where we're like, what? And then remember what God says, my arm is not shortened that I cannot save. Um. If you really believe that God has elected and chosen to save, then you don't fear the idea, well, this person might resist God. If God wants to save somebody, he will. God's hand is not shortened. His power is not, oh, well, they just wouldn't come. God does whatever he wishes. So in so many words, that's my encouragement to you this morning that God is working all things towards your conformity to the image of Christ. He's doing so from the big picture but we have to trust that he has a much bigger picture for us than we comprehend and that he will certainly accomplish all that he wishes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you that, Lord, while we do not understand the plan, that we don't know what the next day might bring, we know that you are working all things so that we might be conformed to Christ. And may you do that this week in a way that we acknowledge that you are good, your plan is good, and that it is for good purposes that you're bringing about these events. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.